Amen. Hey, thank you, Kevin. Well, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Thanks for making your way here. And thank you to so many of you who have uh, volunteered so much, even just this morning. I'm sitting there um, just grateful to you for all that you do, whether it's worship team, helping in kids' ministry, um, going on missions trips, whatever it might be. Um, you make uh, the world go round, right? You make things happen at GPC. So thank you for all that you do. Uh, well, if you ask anyone who's uh, been a Christian for uh, several years at least, this question, most people who've been in church or would call themselves a Christian would know the answer pretty easily. And if you were to ask them, uh, what is the most important thing for a Christian? Or if you put it another way, if you knew the right question to ask, you could ask, what is the greatest commandment a Christian should follow? And you would probably get a pretty simple answer because the answer for the Christian who's been around long enough to know is a fairly simple answer, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And we may say it that way, or we might just say, love God. But it's a fairly straightforward um, response, and I think the right one. Now, the problem with that, of course, is this, that you all have known people, and I've known people who have loved God, but also haven't loved their neighbor, right? Where all of a sudden you find out after living near someone or working with someone for a decade or two decades or longer, you're like, seriously, they're a Christian? <laughs> like, I mean, they... They treat the people who work for them that way, but they are, are Christian? I mean, they don't love anybody. I mean, they're kind of hypocritical, but they, they're a Christian because it's pretty easy, isn't it, to actually love God or the concept of God without actually loving the people around you whom God has made. And I think Jesus realized this was a big problem. And so when he walked the planet and people asked him the question, Jesus, excuse me, I have a question. What is the greatest commandment? He did something that no one else had done before, and he took the greatest commandment answer, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And he immediately, before the sentence could trail off, he melded something very important with that big idea. Not only to love God with all your heart, and the second, he said, is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing that, he put together two huge ideas, not just one anymore for the Christian. And I think the reason he did that is because it is easy to say you love God and at the same time, choose not to love your neighbor. And the reason for that is very simple, and you've experienced this too. In fact, I was talking to a former football coach not too long ago, and he was telling me about a situation that happened toward the end of a game. He said, listen, Tim, it was fourth down. I was trying to make a decision on what to do because our third down play needed to gain four yards. It gained about three and a half, and we were down to about the 10-yard line. I needed to know if I'm going to kick a field goal or try to push forward for the extra half yard. It's fourth down. The 35-second play clock is running down and it's starting to tick down, tick down, and I'm kind of going through my brain quick. I need to make a decision within a few seconds, and I feel a tap on my shoulder, a tug on my arm, and I'm just thinking, is one of my assistants kind of going to give me the play that I need, right, in this moment to, to continue the game and, and win this thing? And I look around, and it's the equipment manager, and he says, Coach, we're almost out of water. <laughs> Sometimes we're on completely different wavelengths. Sometimes we can really get under each other's skin, can't we? It is easy to say, I love God, and easy to not love your neighbor all at the same time. Because honestly, if we're just honest, if we could just talk like we're sitting down next to each other, sometimes our neighbors are flat out annoying, right? Sometimes they say things that are just, you're missing the moment here, buddy. Like this is not, I don't care about the water. We got a fourth down play to call, buddy. You know, I don't care about that because we sometimes miss the mark. You've been offended by people. People have been thoughtless toward you. Sometimes, if we're honest, we've been thoughtless toward other people. 
It's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to say that I love God and not love your neighbor. And, and here's what Jesus does. It's a, such a beautiful thing. In blending these two things, what Jesus brings into play is that the way that I love the people around me who most annoy me, offend me, are thoughtless toward me, compete with me for limited resources, by the way, in business or in future job placements, when they're limited resources and I have a competitor, my last choice often is to think about how to love you. But what Jesus did in putting these two together is he said, the way that you are going to show your love for God is the quality by which you are going to love the children that God has made, the people who are right next to you and right next to me. And so all of a sudden in Jesus' world, when you ask a Christian the question, what is the greatest commandment? The Christian can no longer answer it. Well, it's simply love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If they're going to follow Jesus, then they also have to say, and it's actually to love you. In the very moment when you offend me the most, are thoughtless toward me the most, and are competing with me for the limited resources, that also is an expression of what the greatest thing is to do as a Christian, because that's what Jesus kind of said. Now, here's the beauty of that. Solomon, I think, knew this a long time ago. As he was sitting around with his son at this table, kind of having a conversation with him, giving him some things that are good to know for his life, he kind of wanted Solomon, I think, wanted his son to know, here's how you should handle the people around you who are honestly sometimes the least deserving of your love, the people that you would rather just move on from, but you can't. you got to figure out in your world how are you going to treat the people that you will keep running into at church, in your family, at school, and at work. And Solomon gives his son some ideas that I want to take you to that are good to know if you're going to figure out how in the world do I love the people around me and love God well. So I want to invite you to turn in the Bible to Proverbs chapter 3. This is where we've been hanging out for the last, um, probably, this would be week number 8. But Proverbs chapter 3, you'll find the book of Proverbs kind of in the middle of your Bible. Psalms is kind of right in the middle, and then just to the right of that will be Proverbs. You can open it on your app or in your Bible uh, in the pew around you, but that is our gift to you if you don't own a Bible, by the way. Be glad to have you take that Bible with you. Um, But I'm reading from what they call the New International Version, NIV, and Solomon is again sitting with his son, and he knows that if you're going to show love to your Heavenly Father, if you're going to claim that I love God, the the very next thing that has to be true for you, and, and for me, is that we have to figure out how do we then also love our neighbor, because our neighbors are the people whom God has made, and they're children of the Heavenly Father, just like we are, okay? So Proverbs chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 27 to 30, uh, and then I'm going to come back and make some comments on them. All right, here's Solomon. He says, do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow, when you have it, excuse me, when you now have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Okay, now look at your Bible for a minute, look at your app, look at whatever you have open in front of you. Uh, and notice we have four verses, so we're just going to divide that two by two. The first two verses go together, and the next two go together. Verses 27 and 28 are a more kind of passive, reactive, and verses 29 and 30 are a little more proactive and planned response. Okay, So let's look at 27 to 28 first, verse, verse 27. He says, don't withhold good from those who deserve it. Now, he doesn't really define what good is, I and mean, you get to define that, and the son gets to define that. What does that mean by good? What good do I have that someone else might have? 
And basically in the Hebrew, what this is saying is, don't withhold good from the person who owns it. Kind of like if someone were to come to work for you and you agree that you're going to pay them, let's just say $100 for a full day's worth of work, and at the end of the day, you decide, you know what, I'm going to go with 60. Like, I think 60 might be fair. In fact, I don't know, you took a long lunch break. I'm going to go with like 50 maybe. Like, nope, you agreed you put it out there, that is the good that you need to give to that person. They deserve and they need that $100 that you gave them. So that is the image here. Don't withhold from someone else that which you should give to them, almost like wages that a worker has earned, which is a strange way to think about this. It's almost as if someone that you don't like, someone that you may not prefer, someone that you may wish you don't see again, actually deserves good from you and good from me. Don't withhold good from the people who deserve it. it leads to this question well who's deserving that's a great question because i have a list of people who aren't do you you have a list of people who aren't do you have a picture of someone who isn't do you have the spouse that you might not prefer to be working with right now do you have the family member who's a little strange the roommate who's just making decisions you wouldn't like them to make the teacher who's just being a little bit of a jerk right now the boss who doesn't get you or your coworker who is just weird right so who's deserving? Come on, is this Republicans, Democrats, homosexual, heterosexual? I mean, who's deserving? Of all the things that are going on in our world today, I mean, who's deserving? Don't withhold good from those who deserve it, he says. So, in other words, you're saying there's people who don't deserve it. Is that right? Or is he? It's a great question. And the only way that he qualifies this is qualifies it further at the last part of verse 27. Don't withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. And that picture is it's as if your hand has some power in it and there's something in your hand and you have the ability to give to someone that thing which is in your hand. You have that power to act. There's something that you can do in this situation with your boss, with your employee, with your spouse, with your coworker, with your teammate. When there's something in your power to hand, something in your hand that you can do, what is it that you're going to do? Often... Here's how I think of this. For me, when it comes to who's deserving and who's not, my default is often to think, well, they haven't performed, they haven't done, they've offended, they've bothered, they've whatever, crossed my path, and I don't think they're deserving. But I also have to ask the question in the middle of this, is there anything at all within my power that I can do for my neighbor right now? Is there anything at all that I can do? If the basis of their deserving is that the person next to me who is most thoughtless toward me and who, honestly, I sometimes am most thoughtless toward, if that person is also a child of my heavenly Father, then that becomes the basis of my evaluation of their deserving. If it's true that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, before I turned to him, if while I was still turned back from him, still an enemy of him, he came to me, then I have to ask, if I was deserving, quote-unquote, for him to die when I still rejected him, who are the people around me who I need to love now, who may not be deserving, but because, simply because they're made in the image of my Heavenly Father, are deserving because of how God, my Heavenly Father, has made them. And then I have to ask this question, is there anything at all within my power that I can do even for the one who I might not prefer? And if I'm honest, the answer to that is usually Yes. Even if I have to let an employee go, even if I have to have a hard conversation, even if I get dumped by a future ex, 
Is there anything at all within my power that I can do right now? And at the base level, we talked about this as a staff this week, and one of our staff members said this. They said, it is hard to be angry with people you are praying for. I thought, yep. I wish you wouldn't have said that. That's what I thought. Because it was insightful and true. Is there anything within my power, at the least of which is even praying for the people who are, I don't know, my enemies? Jesus had something to say about that too. So here's, here's Solomon talking to his son. So don't withhold good. People around you deserve it, my son. <laughs> like workers working for this, they deserve good. And you're going to have to ask, is there anything that you can do that's within your power? There's some things that you cannot do, but I can almost guarantee you in almost every situation, there is something that you can do that will be good for your neighbor. And he goes on in verse 28. He says, don't say to your neighbor, come back later. I'll give it tomorrow when you now have it with you. Like, this is simply the issue of when you need something and I have it with me and I decide not to give it to you or, or whatever, I'm just making an excuse. I, I, gotta just flat, I don't want to help you right now. It's too inconvenient. I have other things that I want to do. I asked this question this week on uh, social media, and here's the question I asked. What's the difference between an excuse and a reason? And, and I basically said, and you've heard it before, that someone tells you a reason why they can't do it and all you hear is an excuse, right? Like you've been there. If you've been a parent, you've heard this from your kids. If you've been a kid, you've given it to your parents. If you've been a teammate, a school, I mean, listen, we've all done this and received this, okay? We're equally both victim of it and perpetrator of it. We, we do this all the time. And we kind of ebb and flow between reason and excuse. And sometimes people realize it's an excuse and they don't tell us that because we're being nice, but sometimes it just is. But what is the difference between reason and excuse? Because here Solomon says, don't, don't give to your neighbor this line of, I can't do it right now. Like, don't tell yourself in your brain, I can't do it right now. I can't help you right now. I have a project to finish. I have a deadline to go forward. We got to move forward with this initiative and this project and this plan. Like, I don't have time, I don't have room, I don't have space to do it right now. When actually, if you were thinking about it, you do have time right now to do something. And he's saying, don't make an excuse. Don't wait and say, come back tomorrow. I'll do that later. Oh, there's a compliment I need to give to them. I'll give it later at the annual review. Like, there's a good thing I should say, but I'll do that later. Like, don't push that off, he's saying. So what's the difference between a reason and an excuse? And it's a, a great conversation on Facebook, by the way, that, that I really appreciate with so many of you and so many great things. I'm just going to boil it all down to one little word that I think, for me, is very helpful to think about how I interact with you and maybe how you will interact with me and others around you. And the difference I see, the primary difference is this issue of responsibility. Responsibility. With a reason, I am taking responsibility for your welfare and I'm going to be responsible to make sure that I give you the good thing, whether it's now or later, but I will be responsible to you because that is what love requires of me. It requires that I give to you as a fellow child of God the good that God has given to me. An excuse is deferring responsibility, is pushing that off. It's saying, I don't have time for, I don't have interest in, I don't have resources for, and I can't because whatever. In other words, I don't need to be responsible for you at all. I don't need to be responsible to give to you the things that you, quote-unquote, deserve because you and me are children of the same Heavenly Father. And this is simply the issue to me, is do I, as a fellow child of God, take responsibility for that which I need to give to you because love requires of me that I give to you the same love that God has given to me through Jesus Christ while I was still a sinner. Christ died for me. Don't withhold good from those who deserve it. And don't say, I'll bring it tomorrow. I'll say that later. I'll make that up later. I'll encourage that later. We'll fix that later. I'll be a better leader later for them. 
Don't make that excuse. Take responsibility now for who is around you. Now, he goes on. This is kind of the reactive thing. So when these things happen, he says, don't react. Now, he goes on in verses 29 and 30. He paints a picture of something very different. And in 29 and 30, he kind of points, paints a picture of someone who's actually being, I don't know, I'll just say mean, all right? Look at it again with me, 29 and 30. He says, now, don't plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. In other words, this is now moving from withholding things to plotting against, to planning against your neighbor. Um, in other words, don't let your gain, like your gain, be your neighbor's loss. Don't let the things that you are trying to get require that your neighbor lose so that you get ahead. To, to flesh this out a little bit, if you are, um, you know, if, if you are working in a business here locally, don't require... Uh, don't plan, kind of a subtle plan behind the scenes that here's how we're going to increase our market share, is if we can somehow undermine the credibility of the businesses near us, if we can somehow get their customer base and kind of slide by, I'm still going to be friendly with their CEO, I'm still going to be friendly with what they do, but on the back end, man, we all know this is the way business works. I'm going to be working to steal their profit margin. I'm going to be working to steal their client base. I'm going to be working, oh, steal is a big word, I'm going to just, just trying to build my business. Competition is how business works, right? He's just saying, don't plot harm against your neighbor. If you're going to do that, just be straightforward with that. And his point is, don't plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully with you, who on the one hand, we are being friendly to and engaging with, but on the back end, we're actually trying, <laughs> recognizing that your ruin, your loss is going to be our gain. Gossip works the same way, by the way. You know this. You've seen this and you felt this. In other words, if you're in a group of friends and someone says, can you believe the way that she did this and the way that he did that and the way, you know, can you believe she broke up this way and she said this and blah, blah, blah. And you know that basically what's happening is we're diminishing the value of this person who's not in the room and not in the conversation. And by contributing to that, we are lowering her so that we can be gained, so that we can win, so that she can lose and we can win. He said, don't plot harm against your neighbor. Like, they don't even know you're talking about them. Don't, don't do that. Don't engage in the things that require people to lose so that you can win. That's not what people who love our Heavenly Father do. Don't plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully with you, who you will see later in the halls and be like, hey, what's going on? Everything's good, except I mean, I just trashed you over here, but hey, we're good, you know, over here. Like, don't live that manipulative life. Don't say that of your spouse. Go out and hang out with people and trash your spouse and come back and not tell them what's really going on. Like, that doesn't help your spouse. It doesn't help anybody. So this is, don't plot harm against the people who live trustfully with you. You have no idea this is going on. And he goes on. And don't accuse a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Don't, and this is legal language. This is basically don't take someone to court for no reason. Don't try to build your, you know, your empire in ways that are not all that healthy. Okay? So, so here's another question. Here's another question that I want to ask. And that is this question. Um, who is the neighbor? Do you see it there in your text? Look at verse 28 and also in verse 29. Neighbor shows up two times. Don't say to your neighbor, come back later, and do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. So who is the neighbor? If we're honest with this, our neighbor is often the person that we like to hang out with. They're the people who work close to us. They're the people we like to go out to lunch with, that we'll text, we'll call, whatever, you know, we'll do the people, we'll hang out with the people who are close to us. And they're kind of neighborly, they're friendly. We enjoy having those people as a neighbor. But there's actually two clues in the text that takes us beyond neighbor in general to neighbor in particular. And I want to look at those with you. Look back in, your, in, the, in the Bible there in Proverbs 3, 27. 
at the beginning of this passage. He says, don't withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. This is the first clarification of who a neighbor is. In other words, you have power and your neighbor in this case doesn't. You have power to act. You have good in your hand that you can give to your neighbor and they do not. And so when you ask the question, who is my neighbor? The first answer to that in the text is the neighbor that Solomon is thinking about is the neighbor who does not have the things that you have. They are in a position of weakness and you are in a position of strength. You have maybe social capital, people like you, and not as many people like them. You have leadership capital, and they do not have as much leadership capital. You have a solid reputation, and they do not. Maybe you have more finances, and they do not. It almost doesn't matter what it is, but he's saying you have some power, and it could just be in this moment, you have power, and they do not. And so we're talking about people who, if you were to help, this is why this is important, listen, if you were to help these people, you gain almost nothing from the help of it. Because they do, but you don't. Now you have all that you need, and you're in a position of power, and you can help people. And so the neighbor is the person, in this case from verse 27, the person who needs something from you, and in the helping of it, it will take your time, it will take your thought, it will take your energy, it might take your resources, and you know what you will get back from it? Probably nothing. But that's not the point. Just don't withhold good from the people who deserve it. Well, who deserves it? Well, anyone made in the image of our Heavenly Father, like me and like, like you. Don't withhold good. So the, first of all, people who deserve it, people who need something, people who are, have less power, influence, authority than we do. The second thing that he says is the second neighbor is in verse 29. Don't plot harm against your neighbor. So this is that second picture of a neighbor. Let me ask you the question. Why would anyone plot harm in the first place? I was trying to think about this with, I was, I was picturing Jen and I, my wife and I, sitting around the table, um, our dinner table, and uh, you know, we'll eat dinner together as a family as often as we can, and then uh, afterwards um, clear the table and chat together as a family until things go crazy, and then we, um, in a good way, anyway. And then sometimes we'll just sit around and talk for a couple minutes just to try to get connected again from the day and what have you. And I'm just trying to imagine Jen and I sitting around like, who can we plot harm against? You know, like, first of all, no one uses the language. And second of all, no one is ever that intentional about plotting harm, right? I mean, can you imagine a conversation where that would ever actually happen? And I can't. So, and yet, and yet, there seems to be something here that Solomon is trying to help his son to avoid. And so I ask the question, why does anyone, why does anyone plot harm against anyone else? And my answer to that, and you can decide if this is right or not, but my answer is that the only people who plot harm against someone else are people who have something to gain by that someone else's demise. If you don't have anything that I want, then I'm not going to bother with you. If you don't have a customer base that I want, I will not think about you. If you don't have social capital that I want, I won't bother with you. If you don't have real estate that I want, I'm not going to bother with you. If you don't have the reputation, if you're not competing for, then I'm not going to bother you. If you work in the same company, but we know that there's only five of us competing for the promotion and you're not one of the five, I don't care if you're harmful or successful. And if I'm on a soccer team, a basketball team, baseball team, and we're trying to make the playoffs, and if your team loses, we make it, I'm going to cheer for you to lose. 
so that it can be my gain. Right? But I'm not going to sit around saying, we're plotting harm. But here's what he's saying. I, don't plot harm, and here's what I think. It's simply this. I am only interested in plotting harm, so to speak, when the people, when my plans will impact someone who they have something that I want or something that I think I need. And whether that is they have a better-looking family, they have a better-looking Instagram feed, they have a better-looking whatever, they have more of whatever, blah, blah, blah. That is when I'm interested in seeing how can I compete with you for the things that you have. Now, I want to take a minute and read this passage one more time because I think it's helpful here. What I would love for you to do is I'd love for you to right now think about who is it around you? A family member? A teammate? Schoolmate? Coworker? Leader in your community? Whoever it might be. Who, if you had your druthers, I don't know where that word druthers came from, but I think we know what that means. If you had your way, if you had, if you had things that you could control the universe, it would not be a problem for you not to see them again. <laughs> it would be easier for you not to be bothered by running into them again. If you had your way, I want you to think about that person for a second. Now, with that person in mind, the people who kind of annoy you, kind of get under your skin, kind of push you the wrong way, look at verses 27 to 30 again with me in Proverbs 3 and read this with them in mind. He says, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it. Question, the first one is, do they deserve it? Does my spouse deserve it? My kids deserve it? My parents my business partner, my employee. When it is in your power to act, I have to ask myself the question, do I have anything that I can do in this situation? Can I pray for them at the very least? Come on, is there anything in my power that I can do that will be good for those people? Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow. When these people who annoy you, bother you, push your buttons, come to you, don't give an excuse. Take responsibility for them because that's what God did for us in Christ. Don't give an excuse. We have a responsibility for one another. Then he says, verse 29 and 30, don't plot harm. Don't, don't push it further. Don't plot harm against your neighbor. Don't cheer for their failure. These people live trustfully near you and don't accuse a man for no reason when he's done you no harm. Don't start spreading rumors. Don't start pushing the gossip thing. Don't start tearing down their reputation. That doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help your heavenly father. It doesn't help you. And so Solomon, I think, is saying to his son this, and if this is helpful for you, I, I hope it is. I hope you can take it. But basically, when I refuse, we both lose. When I refuse, when I refuse to see you as a child of God, we both lose. When I refuse to do the good that I should do, even when you annoy me, we both lose. When I refuse to help when I should, we both lose. My default is when I refuse to help you, you lose. And that's a win for me. You needed money, I didn't give it to you. You needed an opportunity, I didn't give it to you. You needed forgiveness, I didn't give it to you. You lose, I win. But listen, you, you know, you know, when I refuse, we both lose. Because yes, you lose, you don't get the things that I could give to you, but come on, I also lose. My heart loses. My character is hardened. I do not take responsibility as I should. Love requires of me that I love you. And when I do not, I lose too. And you do. And so when I refuse, we both lose. 
just the reality. And this is what I think Solomon, as a loving father, is saying to his son. Like, son, come here a second. God requires that we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And one of the best, most tangible ways to do that is to love your neighbor well. Your neighbor is going to annoy the snot out of you. They are going to compete with you for resources. They are going to live in your family. They're going to go to church with you. They're going to be in your school, on your team, in your room. They are going to be everywhere that you go. And those are the people that love requires of you that you do not make an excuse. But take responsibility to show the love of the Heavenly Father to them. And when you refuse to do that, yes, they will lose. And you may feel good about that. But know this, you too will lose in that very moment. And you will not be showing the love of the Heavenly Father to those around you. Don't do that. That's easy. Come on, that's easy stuff, not to love your enemy. But it's different to love your enemy, as God would have us do. Which is why I ask this question, and with this I'll wrap it up. Is there anything within my power that I can do, even for those that I think are least deserving? Is there anything that you can do within your power, for even those that you think are least deserving. Anything at all, any note to write, any forgiveness to offer, any prayer to pray, if nothing else, that you can do within your power to soften both your heart and provide a benefit and support to the people around you who are most difficult to love. While Jesus stands there and gives this incredible answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It is the hardest thing in the world, isn't it? To love people like me with all my failures and to love people like us with all of our failures. It's the hardest thing in the world. It's just easy to say, let's love God because he's invisible. Come on, it gets real. I say, come on, let's, let's love one another. It's hard. Is there anything at all within your power that you can do it's in your hand. Don't refuse the good. Take responsibility for your neighbor. What does love require that you do? The people who work with you, go to school with you, go to church with you, live in our community together. Solomon is a brilliant teacher, brilliant communicator. And next week, in the final closing of this series, he makes one final closing appeal to his son about the power of wisdom and gaining it. I don't want you to miss that as we wrap up our series next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to be here this morning and to see again a principle that many of us have heard before, and that is how to love our neighbor, love people who are difficult to love. But I pray that you would help us take this a little bit further this morning to love those around us who it is just too easy to pass by on Monday mornings at work and to forget in the hallways as we're walking into school this week, many of whom are starting school this week. It's too easy to know that we're in competition for a promotion and we'd be okay if the people who are working with us fail a little bit while we succeed. I pray that you would help us to see what love requires of us and help us not to be people who make excuses, who push off where we should take responsibility. That love requires of us the same thing that love required of Jesus when he died on the cross for us. It requires a sacrifice. It requires other-centeredness. It requires that we be people who step into love no matter what it takes. And I pray that you would help us to see that whenever we refuse, we both lose, no matter what. That our hearts are changed. And so I pray that you'd help us to step into the fears and into the struggle and into the pain, into the hurt, that we may be people 
who love well and serve well. We thank you that you're a good father, that you lead us and challenge us. And I pray that you would lead us into this space of loving one another very well. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.